Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, we're talking about our kids and the ever-changing world of media and technology with my good friend, Jim Steyer. Jim is the founder and CEO of Common Sense, a wonderful organization dedicated to helping kids thrive in a world of media and technology. Jim's also the author of several books about children in the digital age, including Talking Back to Facebook, which was published in 2012, and the recently released Which Side of History? How Technology is Reshaping Democracy and Our Lives. For over 30 years, Jim has also been an award-winning and beloved professor at Stanford University, teaching courses on civil rights, civil liberties, and education issues. He and his wife, Liz, have four children, Lily, who's 28, Kirk, 26, Carly, 23, and Jesse, 17. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Jim. Thank you, Carol. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining me to talk about kids and media, a subject which parents just stay focused on these days. As anyone who's read my blog knows, I'm a huge fan of Common Sense Media, and I always have been. I relied on your media ratings when my kids were younger, and I recommend the site to parents regularly. Full disclosure, I'm on Common Sense's New York Advisory Council, so I know how hard the organization works for parents and children everywhere. So, Jim, I just want to start out by saying it's important to note that Common Sense is not simply anti-tech. Isn't that right? It's not just saying parents keep your kids away from screens. That's absolutely correct, Carol. In fact, we're not anti-tech or anti-media. And, you know, we have over 100 million unique parent users. So they know that we curate and help you select the best tech, the best media. We give you advice about how to manage your kids' media and tech diets. But we're in no way anti-tech. We deal with all the major tech companies at the CEO level on down. We deal with all the media companies in the same way. So we're definitely not anti-tech or anti-media. We're pro-kid and pro-family. That's great. So I just want to give a quick overview, focusing on four areas of your mission. And first, I'll start with the reviews, because those are the closest to my heart. And and that's how I came to know Common Sense. So you you have teams of parents and now kids reviewing all sorts of media. Is that right? Yes, but we have professional experts. So we rate every movie, TV, video game, website, music, book, apps. I mean, we dominate the field. We're the Mm -hmm. consumer reports guide of media and technology for families. So we have professionals who write the reviews. But then, just like Amazon lets people review books, the public, we also let kids and parents review everything. So if you're a common sense media user, you can see the experts review, but then you can see what other parents think and other kids think. I have to just quickly tell a story about this. Um, when my youngest was a big, it still is a big video game player, but you guys review video games. And Definitely. we were having a constant tussle over he wanted to use a video game, which was M-rated. I thought it was filled with misogynist, racially offensive, terrible things. And I refused to let him use it. I banned it from the house. And so we would argue. And finally, I said, well, look, Let's just let's go to common sense media because he was insisting that it wasn't as bad as I thought. So I boldly went to common sense media, fully expecting that they would agree with me and say, oh, absolutely wrong. Don't let your child near this. Well, not only there was they rated it for 14 and up. And my son at the time was 14. And not only did the experts 
they talked about the issues with it, but they also talked about what good things came out of it from kids' perspectives. And then you had a parent and a child review it. And the parent was saying, look, I play this game with my son. I know there are issues, but we talk about them. So I was like, okay, I, I was stuck because I said, we'll do what common sense media says. And That's so funny. we sat and watched it and I did running commentary, at least for the first time. So you know, I have to say, I in that instance, I wasn't thrilled with the initial <laughs> result from Common Sense, but it it worked out really well. It made my son trust that I trusted him, and I I mean, it just was another example of how great your system is and how how useful it is. <laughs> that's funny, Carol. Thank you, because we that's exactly what we want you to do. I mean, I remember when we, when I first started the organization, we used to say at some point kids are going to come to their parents and say, "Here's what Common Sense Media says." By the way, we had huge battles, particularly with my two sons. I've had huge battles with them over video games. And also because we're the largest kids advocacy group in the United States and the largest mm-hmm. tech advocacy group in the world, mm-hmm. we're the guys who take on the video game industry. So at the same time as we do all those reviews, you know, we're the guys who passed all the laws that prevented the sale of sexually violent and ultraviolet video games to minors. And we had a huge war, if you will, with the video game industry back in like 2006 through 2009, where we basically forced the industry to change their sales practices because they were targeting not just M-rated, but even adult video games like Grand Theft Auto and some of the other really just postal, some of the disgusting ones at, directly at children and marketing mostly to low-income kids and families. And so we've had a big battle with them. My kids hate common sense media, of course, though, because <laughs> it's made me a very difficult father to have. Yeah, I I can see that. But I have to say, being able to sit and sort of look through squinched eyes at all the stuff that was going on the screen was helpful for me, because just as I was telling my son about how awful all this representation was, he was showing me that he was really interested in driving a car as fast as he could and, you know, and racing around and that, you know, I I, I could live with his exposure since he knew that it wasn't right. So I am really grateful for that. So so. Moving on, the, the, the next thing that you guys do so well is the educational support. And I really want to focus on this with respect to COVID times. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the amazing wide open schools, which kind of grew sure. up in COVID? Sure. And basically, Carol, what happened is when COVID hit back in basically March of 2020, we could see that there was going to be a devastating impact on schools in the country, but particularly in low-income schools, whether it's in in urban, big urban districts like New York, L.A., Oakland, uh, Chicago, or rural districts. Everybody was going to be doing school from home. And mm-hmm. there were two things that we saw. One, there was a huge digital divide, meaning that about 15 or 16 million young people in the United States do not have adequate broadband or devices even to go to school in a distance mm-hmm. learning environment. But the second thing we realized is there was no simple universal hub where parents could go and teachers could go so they could get all the information about distance learning and also really cool content. So we put up in two weeks with a a New York-based company called Amplify. Uh, We built a website called Wide Open School, and it has become the default distance learning platform for millions and millions of students around the country. And the idea was to put all the best stuff there, like if you're a preschooler from Sesame Street or PBS Kids, but really great stuff from Scholastic, National Geographic, you name the content provider. So we put it all in one place and we made it free to everybody. And then Google, Apple, we went to the major tech companies and said, build the infrastructure with us. 
and make it available to every kid in the United States. So wide open school was basically one of our responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. The other was to continue to be the leading advocacy group in the United States focused on closing the digital divide and what we call the homework gap, which basically means poor kids don't have the connectivity and devices at home to do distance learning. This is a huge problem, which we're still working on uh, and which is a very big challenge for low-income kids in schools in this country. Oh, absolutely. And it's really amazing how you guys tapped in so well to what parents were so worried about. Even if they were able to, uh, if their children were able to attend schools and they had the connectivity, so much of the school was truncated. It was part of the day or depending on your child's mood, you did, they didn't want to sit for the time the school was open. So you guys gathered really great content that parents could use outside of the school day to engage their kids. Because as we well remember, parents in the beginning of this were just going crazy with all the time that their children were not doing anything. And so it's a great service that you guys have provided. And and you also, even absent the pandemic, common sense is in schools. Oh, yes. In a big way, Carol, in a really big way. Yeah, talk a little bit about what you guys do when there's no pandemic. So we always say we have three, we always say we really are three very large nonprofits rolled into one. We say we rate, educate, and advocate. The rating part we were just talking about, that's all the reviews of movies and video games and TV shows, et cetera. The educate part is really centered around the concept of digital citizenship, which is a field that we created back in 2007 and 2008 with Howard Gardner, who's a famous education school professor at Harvard. So we took his research and we turned it into basically driver's education for the Internet and social media. Mm -hmm. So we have a curriculum K through 12 that is in 110,000 member schools. The great majority of United States schools, including those for in our listening audience of their parents, those schools use our curriculum daily to teach good digital citizenship to students, again, K through 12. And that's everything from safety and security to privacy issues to cyberbullying, how to deal with cyberbullying and harassment to misinformation, disinformation, and news literacy. So we created an entire field of education. And since it didn't previously exist, we called it digital citizenship and digital literacy. And we give it away for free to the great majority of schools in the United States. We also have 1.3 million teacher members. So about half of all the teachers in the United States are members of Common Sense Media. And we give everything for free to teachers and schools so that your kids can be good digital citizens, safe, responsible, moral, ethically sound kids in this 24-7 digital world that we're all growing up in. That's the centerpiece. That's an even bigger part of it. And it's now really popular globally in English-speaking countries like the UK or Australia, New Zealand, even India. Basically, people around the world use that curriculum because it's the only digital citizenship curriculum in the world. So it's so important and it's so easy because parents are so focused now on what their children are learning from the screens to forget about the critical importance of how to conduct yourself with screens. And so this digital citizenship concept, while it may have been shelved for this past year because of the pandemic, is really, really, really important. And so I know it goes from everything to cyberbullying to it covers the the sort of the waterfront. So and and you mentioned advocacy, which is the next thing I want to turn to. So most recently, you're because of common sense, there's a new law that came out of California, the Consumer Privacy Act. Yeah. Um, and, And and 
you you say in in your recent book about how people were incredulous that you could even get this bill moving and now it's the law of the land can you talk about the kinds of things you wanted to change and how you got it changed so carol since you and i have been friends for many years you know that my life work is really as a civil rights lawyer and child advocate Mm -hmm. and when i started common sense the goal was to build the most important child advocacy group in the United States. To be very blunt with you, I had no idea that the media platform would become this incredibly successful global <laughs> media platform with hundreds of millions of users. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, we hadn't even conceived of the education platform, the digital citizenship curriculum, all that. That we that we started about five years into the organization. But I always knew we wanted to be the most important child advocacy group in the, in the world. And you knew that was my previous career before yes. I started Common Sense. Absolutely. And so... The truth and the reason we built the media platform was so parents would and teachers would join Common Sense and be supporters and then therefore advocate for children, particularly low income children. Ah. And that was the that was the plan. And essentially, we gave the other stuff away for free so that you would become a child advocate. Right. Because there was no constituency for children in the United States until Common Sense Media came on. And it worked better than we could have ever dreamed. But fundamentally, we're a child advocacy group. And so but we deal with multiple issues. And we'll start with privacy, but I also want to tell you about what we do around kids in poverty, because we just had a huge win with the Biden administration and Congress with the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which is the biggest piece of legislation for children in the past 50 years in the U.S., and which we played an instrumental role in framing. But what we did on privacy is this. Back in about 2010, so about 10 or 11 years ago, as you know, I'm a professor at Stanford, and I teach con law to undergraduates, civil rights and civil liberties. And you know, from being a lawyer yourself, Carol, that privacy is a fundamental right under the U.S. Constitution. But privacy was eviscerated by Mark Zuckerberg uh, at Facebook, Eric Schmidt, and the people at Google. In the early 2000s, they basically started saying privacy doesn't matter. Who cares about privacy? That's because they had a business model, an advertising-based business model that was all about hoovering up your data and your kids' data and then selling it to advertisers so that they could become what they have become, trillion-dollar companies, the most powerful, richest companies in the history of the world, right? Right. So, And I remember conversations with... Mark and Cheryl at Facebook back in like 2010, where they said privacy is passe. I'm like, how can you say privacy is passe? It is a fundamental right in the United States and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so basically when I wrote Talking Back to Facebook, which you mentioned came out in 2012, there was a period where I would ask my own children, do you care about privacy? And they said, dad, there is no privacy anymore. Privacy has been wiped out. I'm like, that is not true. That makes no sense. And privacy really matters. But there was a period there where the large tech companies basically told the world that privacy didn't matter. And a lot of people took that as the price they had to pay in order to have technology, particularly Facebook and Google. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I got pissed off, basically, and said, this is crazy. And I went to people in the Senate, Ed Markey, Dick Blumenthal, various senators, and said we should run federal privacy legislation. But the truth is, Congress has been was so dysfunctional and incapable of passing federal privacy. They haven't passed federal privacy legislation since 1996, when Mark Zuckerberg was in diapers. And so... (laughs) So basically what we realized was Common Sense has 10 offices, but our headquarters are in the Bay Area in California. And almost all the key companies, Facebook, Google, et cetera, are based Apple, Hewlett Packard, you know, Salesforce, they're all in San Francisco in the Bay Area. So 
What happened was first we passed student privacy laws in California to protect the privacy of student data. And then we realized when Europe passed GDPR, which is the major European privacy law in 2018, um, I said, we're going to try a U.S. law. And what we did was we wrote a law that was similar to the European law, but more American. And then I, we went and talked to the CEOs of the major tech companies like Tim Cook at Apple and Mark Benioff at uh, Salesforce and Satya Nadella, who, who had just taken over at Microsoft by then. And we said, look, Privacy is a fundamental right, and it's actually good to your for your business. Like Apple's very pro-privacy in their business. Yeah. We, said, we need you to support us, and we're going to pass a, a, the law of the land, but we're going to do it in California, not Washington, because California was a functioning democracy. And in fact, we passed this huge privacy law over the objections, primarily of Facebook and Google. But we split the industry. The big thing to understand about the tech industry, it's not monolithic. They have different business models. Apple makes its money by selling you iPhones and iPads and all those devices. Mm -hmm. And Microsoft sells you stuff like that, too. They're actually pro-privacy or they've become pro-privacy. And so that's what we did is we split the tech industry and and we pushed it through. Bruce Reed, who's now the basically the co-chief of staff of the United States for President Biden, was my key partner in it. And we convinced the California legislature to pass what is now the law of the land and privacy. It was a big victory. And it truthfully, at the beginning, I did not think we had much of a shot because we were taking on the entire tech industry. But then I realized we're not taking on the whole tech industry. We're really taking on Facebook and Facebook, Google and the advertising based companies whose business is to eviscerate your privacy. Now that the law has been passed, how would the individual consumer feel the difference? You can basically protect all of your data now if you live in California. But truthfully, what we realized is, is we passed the law in California. Basically, the companies have to comply with this. If you live in New York or Philadelphia or rural Idaho or where, you know, or Chicago or wherever you live. So basically now the companies have to ask, you have the right to your own data after the California Consumer Privacy Act. Mm -hmm. And so you get to control it now. And all you have to do is say, you can't have my data. And then they, they can't use it anymore. It's really changed everything. I asked you that specifically because I want parents listening to understand so many of us. And I confess that I'm among them when, when all the, um, uh, when you're going into a new app and there are all these, uh, uh, opportunities to ask your permissions for things, you know, they're long user agreements and you have to accept before you can go. So many um, of us will just click the accept and not really pay that much attention. And if, if the adults do it, I know the children do it. But what we're, right. what, what we're seeing is now that we need to pay more attention. And when they ask you specifically, can we use your data or can we sell your data? The answer is no. <laughs> so everyone right. needs to just take a beat and make sure that you're reading all of that. And that, that kind of actually leads to a a question that came up as you were talking earlier, you know, you mentioned your kids have acknowledged that privacy is sort of, or from their perspective, it was um, a non-event because it was already gone. And you very successfully convinced the world that it's, it is a right that still needs to be protected. But is there a sense of a bit of the um, closing the barn door after the horse is gone with respect to getting kids in particular to understand that their privacy is valuable. Is the hope that the next generation of digital natives will be more attentive? 
Definitely, Carol. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why we have this digital citizenship curriculum in the great majority of schools in the United States. Uh-huh. And, you know, between our consumer platform and our education platform, Common Sense reaches the great majority of American families, right? Mm-hmm. Either in school or at home. Mm-hmm. And we, I would tell you the tide is changing, even in my, my, the own, my own four Steyer children. Because they used to laugh at me about it and say, Dad, you're just old fashioned. Nobody cares. And I'm like, you guys are just wrong. And you're someday you're going to realize your father was correct about this. And now there's been a huge shift in public opinion. Look, Mm -hmm. Apple is now marketing itself as a privacy company. And Apple now and Microsoft, too, they actually are branding themselves to the public that they are pro-privacy. They're they're doing that because it's good for their business. They're not just doing that because they have had a sudden conscience. Changing public opinion takes a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And, and, And particularly, even though Common Sense Media is a large nonprofit, We're not as big as Apple or Google or Facebook or Amazon, but we are winning slowly but steadily. We are winning the public awareness role. And people are now realizing what you and I knew in law school, which is privacy is a fundamental right. And my privacy and my private information, my personal information is really important and it should be protected. And I should control who has it. But I actually think that we can reinstill in young people and in adults the, the respect for the importance of privacy. And that's good because privacy really is matters to your yeah. human interactions and in your family and also to prevent these companies from just taking all your personal information data without your permission. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you are the product. Remember, that's what we have a piece of legislation in California that has not passed yet called you are the product, which is what you need to know. That's how Facebook makes its money and Instagram. They take all of your data and you don't know it. And then they sell it to advertisers and they create a profile about Carol Sutton Lewis. And mm-hmm. then they sell your profile to Target and to anybody else who wants to send ads to you. And they mm-hmm. have all sorts of personal private information about you that you don't even realize they have about your family, about your personal life, about many other things you would not want people to know. That's how they target advertising. That's why you are the product. So, yeah, it's pretty insidious. And so it's really it's insidious. And at the same time, it's very easy to overlook because they appeal as a consumer. You you want it now or as a consumer of social media, you want to see your friend's pictures. So you're not so focused. So you, thank goodness that there is an effort to try to sort of rein this in, because it, it, it if but for these efforts, it would be so much further down the line and and impossible to turn it back. So kudos to common sense. So Carol, the one thing I would add is in my new book, In Which Side of History, Mm -hmm. there's a piece by this famous Harvard business school professor, Shoshana Zuboff, called Mm -hmm. Surveillance Capitalism. Now, she also wrote a 700-page book called Surveillance Capitalism. (laughs) But I would assume some of our audience is not going to read a 700-page book by a Harvard (laughs) business school professor, but they might read an (laughs) eight-page article in, in which side of history by the same person, which summarizes your theory. But essentially what Professor Zuboff says, which is correct, is she calls surveillance, it's surveillance, meaning the business model, particularly of Facebook, right? But it's mm-hmm. Google for the most part, where the ad-based business model is essentially they're trying to get you to give them all of your data for free. 
right? Mm-hmm. And then they sell it. And it's what's, that's why she calls it surveillance. They are surveilling you 24-7, your location, your interests, your kids, your photos, all your personal information. And then they are selling that for massive profits. That, and she basically said that whole business model should be thrown out. Now, mm-hmm. do I believe that the entire business model of Google and Facebook will be thrown out? No, I do not. But do I think that there should be strong privacy laws, not just in California, but at the federal level? I sure do. Well, it's a good sign um, that you are continually meeting with the Facebook and Google people because you're clearly a thorn in their side. But they do recognize that what you're talking about is important and that at the end of the day, they all have to have a corporate conscience to some extent. So, so it's good that you're in there fighting with them because they need they need to hear it. Well, they all use our stuff, too. You know, the other thing is all those executives, all the many of those employees have children. So they all use common sense media. And we just go in with the old mom and apple pie line. Right. We, I mean, Carol, I know since you've known me for a long time, it's hard to believe that I, we would have a halo brand. But we do. And we and by the way, we're not seen as partisan at all. It, you know, people on both sides of the political aisle get this. And that's why we were able to pass the California law. And my guess is we will pass some kind of federal privacy law in the next year or two. I've always wanted to talk to people who have experience and expertise in the tech industry about what they do with their own children. And to your point, I'm sure these executives in these various um, uh, uh, tech companies are concerned about their own children's consumption. I, I read an article several years ago about how some of them were sending their kids to schools that had no screens whatsoever. <laughs> they were building schools with no screens. Waldorf schools, Waldorf schools. Yes. And so it is telling that, that people that are in the thick of it are trying to shield their own kids. But I make that point to them, to their face, to the people who run these companies. I, you know me, Carol, I'm very direct with them. And I'm like, mm-hmm. guys, number they love, they always tell me how great Common Sense Media is. And I'm like, well, thank you very much. What? And number one, why don't you make a donation? Because we give everything for free. <laughs> As your audience knows, we don't charge people. But my real point to them is, that's you know, it's interesting because what we're saying sometimes is directly countered your business practices. And mm-hmm. so, and it, and I always say it's not personal, particularly when I'm arguing like with Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg or people mm-hmm. who are not huge common sense political fans, let's say. Um, <laughs> I'm like, guys, you use our stuff. I'm just talking to you as a parent. As a parent, you totally agree with me. But as a business person, you disagree with me. I actually think you ought to wear your parent hat more often when mm. you view some of these issues. Absolutely. And that just reminds me, one quick thing I that I wasn't planning to go into in great detail, but you guys are the only people that have actually tried to put research parameters around what about the impact of technology. The problem with researching right. is that everything happens so quickly that you can barely catch up with it when there's a new technology to have to focus on. But for years, you have been producing well-researched reports about the impact of this, all of these, um, the media on our children. And everybody wants to know, what is this stuff doing to our kids? We put out a research report about teens and depression during and mental health during the pandemic during covid-19 mm-hmm. and this and and this is part of our overall research program which is critical to the rest of the organization it's really the fourth pillar if we have consumer education and advocacy we also have this research division that we spend millions of dollars on a year and this study showed that 40% of all teens and young adults in the united states are experiencing some form of depression right now because of covid-19 particularly among black and brown communities by the way the mm-hmm. rates are even higher in african american and latino communities but that research is critical. But the other thing is 
technology actually can be helpful. So now there are apps that allow for online counseling and, you know, suicide prevent. There's a lot of ways mm -hmm. though that technology can be useful. You asked me at the beginning, are we anti-tech? No, we're just pro-tech being used in good ways for society and for kids and families. And one of the interesting things about the research was during COVID-19, people have been locked at home, so they don't get to see their friends. It's really isolating. And just imagine how tough that is for kids who are also cooped up in, you know, three people to a room. Think for low-income families how difficult this has been. So, so it's logical that people are going through real mental health stress and anxiety and depression. Um, but there are you can use the Internet to connect to people and you can use Zoom calls to connect to people. And so there are many positive uses of technology that can actually help improve your mental health. So technology is a double-edged sword. And, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's, the whole key is to use it appropriately and wisely and in balance and not to overuse it and not and to avoid the toxic effects of it. It's just right. it's right. like anything in life. Yes, it is. But it's really important that parents who aren't as tuned into all of the latest apps and, and, and programs pay attention because your kids are, even if you aren't. Um, and and. And finally, I want to ask you, Jim, a little bit about Jim, the parent, yep. because you mentioned your kids have a, a, a love hate relationship with common sense. I mean, it couldn't have been fun to have the dad who was like trying to shut stuff down when you were trying to do it. But um, are you like the tech execs in terms of your is your natural instinct to try to keep them away from screens? I mean, how have you sort of focused on their exposure and their use over the years? I would say the two biggest words are balance and moderation. But let me, I'll give you, I'll tell you how I look at it. So when I started Common Sense Media in 2003, publicly, I, I just wrote that book, The Other Parent. And then we launched the organization. And I remember, so Lily was, I mean, what, like, Lily was, I mean, 10 years old, right? Something like that. And Kirk was eight. Carly was five. So they would go to, uh, like, sleepovers. And they would go. They would come home and go, Dad, you're like the most embarrassing father ever because, <laughs> you know, we were going to watch the movie, but Common Sense said it was for 12 and up. So we they they weren't allowed to do it. And they said our friends will go, well, we want to watch so-and-so, but your dad said it isn't OK. <laughs> and so they used to say, we hate Common Sense Media. We hate Common Sense Media. It's so embarrassing to have you as a father because Common Sense makes it not good to go on sleepovers and, you know, on play dates and stuff <laughs> like that. I'd be like, I'm really sorry. <laughs> anyway. It's been very interesting, but I will say we are not tech Nazis, if you will. We are not. We do not believe in abstinence and we do not believe. I, I think you have to have balance. So both of our boys have liked video games, even though Common Sense is the advocacy group that took on the entire video game industry <laughs> at great personal expense to me, by the way. I had death threats against me. I had all Ooh. sorts of stuff happen to me personally. But when we went after from gamers and from the and from the video game companies in the old days. They were furious at us because we regulated them. But what I'll tell you is, is that um, with our kids, we we talk to them a lot about it. And, you know, we have this whole campaign we've run for the last five years about device free dinner. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can imagine what happens when I do not follow the rules. And then my children <laughs> call me on, Dad, look at device free dinner. You're worse than anybody. <laughs> so over the years, we've tried to be pretty balanced. And there are some parents who are really, really, really tough on this. Right. But ironically, I as a parent and and I think my wife, too, we've tried to be 
balanced about it with them. We understand that kids love their phones. They love social media. I'll give you the examples, though. We did not let our three older kids get a phone until they went to high school. And Lily, we didn't let her have IMing. Remember when instant messaging? Oh, yes. And I'm like, you can't. No, it's bad for you. You won't do your homework. Nope, you can't do it. Okay. Now they look back and say, thank you. Now, Jesse, we let him. He was the fourth kid. We let him have an iPhone when he was in eighth grade. You know, he begged for it for five years, right? We finally gave <laughs> it to him in eighth grade, middle of eighth grade. We try to be balanced, but I think delay, delay, delay is a really good thing with kids. I think you have to, that and always talk, talk, talk with your children, mm-hmm. have ongoing conversation with them. And also you have to be a good role model. I mean, the one thing I say to parents is if you tell your kids that they can't be on their phone or their or their iPad device or whatever, but you're on your phone constantly, you're setting a terrible example. So, and by the way, I am no, I am not perfect whatsoever. My kids make fun of me for that. Um, (laughs) But I will say this, there is no one size fits all form of parenting. And we've never thought that there's, and that's why we really feel that is you should make your own choices for your own children that we trust that you should be the arbiter. That's why we also do not put political, religious, or ideological stuff in any of our reviews. Because I, as you know, Carol, have quite strong political views. We are more popular in conservative areas of the United States than we are in liberal areas of the United States, ironically. <laughs> because people look at media and tech through a moral lens sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And and we, But we don't give you the Christian version of this movie or the Muslim version of this movie. Or we just give you the common sense version of stuff. And um, but I, But I think... We try to let you, we give you the information and you decide. It's like nutritional labeling for media and tech. Here are the ingredients. Now you decide what's right for your own children. Right, right. So Jim, as I wrap up here, you know this podcast is designed for parents of black and brown children. Your youngest son is adopted and he's African-American. Correct. So this has been a particularly tough year for all children, as your report indicates, but especially for black and brown children with the one-two punch of the pandemic impact and the witnessing of all the social unrest, witnessing George Floyd murder. And your research indicated that black children have had Um, 37% of the children reported symptoms of of depression. Has having an African-American son sort of influenced how you have conversations with your children about about first mental wellness and then also the social justice movement? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So we adopted Jesse uh, when he was three days old. And by the way, we met his birth mother in the hospital and Mm -hmm. we've stayed friends with his birth mom and she's terrific. She comes out and visits almost every year. But I will tell you, It's been really interesting. Look, first of all, as you know, I'm a former prosecutor and I I remember Kamala Harris. We've been friends for 25 years. She and some of our other African-American friends, when Jesse got to be about 10, said, so who's going to give him the talk? (laughs) And the talk obviously is what African-American parents give their kids all the time about. Here's what happens if you're pulled over by the police. So one, Kamala, when she was AG, actually gave Jesse the talk for an hour. She said, I want him to come over to my office. I'm going to have lunch with him. And it was basically about how unfair it is to black and brown children, young people in the United States, right? How you mm-hmm. how the cops deal with you completely differently. By the way, I know this as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I tried a cop for police brutality in Oakland. And I also know that my I worry about Jesse way more than I worried about our other three children. Like at, mm-hmm. when he's out at night, right? Mm-hmm. Like I worry, like he once ran home from 
his friend's house, like 20 blocks. And it, like at night, at 10 o'clock at night, he ran home because he's fast and he's a good runner. And he basically just ran home. And we were like, Jesse, you shouldn't run home. Mm. And so I will tell you, number one, as a parent, I've worried about this a lot ever since he was about 10 or 11 years old. Even though he's a sire child, he's no different than any of our other children. He looks mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. So number one, for the last six or seven years, I've started worrying about what happens if he gets pulled over by the cops and, you know, and ask for his driver's license. And then they shoot him and claim he was like pulling out a gun, like Mm -hmm. a guy in Minnesota a few years ago. So I always worry about that. But now he's a teenager and he's become much more socially aware. Also, he's a black kid growing up in a white family. That is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he faces different challenges. He's now much more aware. He's really grown up in the last year or two about his own racial identity. Mm -hmm. We talk with him about it a lot. Um, He really, during all the, after the George Floyd murder and all the racial justice incidents, he became much more outspoken at home about what he sees. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because he goes to a largely white school. We always try to send him to the most integrated schools we can. Mm -hmm. But it's been, it's been watching the, the particularly heavy impact on black and brown communities of the pandemic it's definitely hit Jesse differently than our other children, not just because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, because if you said all of the racial justice issues mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, and and also he's aware of his own identity. And he, you know, we're not that cool sometimes, to be very blunt with you, because <laughs> yeah. he said, you don't understand what it's like. And you know what? He's correct. I don't understand. So it's mm-hmm. been an incredible parenting experience. And I would I'm a huge believer in adoption, by the way, and in transracial adoption. Um, but it, 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 there are additional challenges you face. Um, and, and there I really have a number, uh, including you, of good African-American and friends of color who I care like I want to talk to. Our, I, I really mm-hmm. think it's important for Jesse to have black role models mm-hmm. and, and, and really get a sense of his own identity, which is different from our first three kids. So I, I will just I will say that you're absolutely right. Your instinct is right, because it's really important for all kids to have a real a very strong sense of who they are. And and his history is different than your history. It's complicated because our histories are entwined in not a great way. And so when That's you right. learn, the more he learns about his history. But but it's important for all of you, your entire family to learn about his his history as well as your own. The people that I know um, that have grown up in this in this circumstance have really been helped by um, the families embracing their heritage as much as the family's heritage, which it sounds like that you guys are doing. The, the challenge that you have that all a- parents of African-American kids have and you're, you have it even more so is the trying to balance. You know, we talked about balance with respect to tech, the balancing, the, the need to protect your child against harm, the harm that you yeah. know could happen with the desire to have them walk in the world confident. And the confidence comes in part from their pride in their own heritage. So it's important that he has the talk, but it's also important that he knows that even though there may be people in the world that only see a, a an African-American kid and make their own presumptions about it, but he can see himself as somebody who is strong and confident and has the support of his family and his extended family, and he knows where he comes from. And that is such a hard balance I agree. in a world when um, you're just 
praying that they come home okay. So I, I totally agree, Carol. And it's been really interesting. We're very glad that we've that we stayed in such good contact and close contact with his birth mom, who's a terrific person, right? And he's now met two of his three half siblings too. Do you guys watch This Is Us? You know that we show? Watch, of course we watch This Is Us. It's my wife's <laughs> favorite show. Are you kidding me? It's my wife's favorite. And Sterling K. Brown was my took my class at Stanford, by really? the way. Yes, what? he's a Stanford grad, I'm proud to say. And yes, we do watch. But by the way, we also watch lots of different stuff. We expose, We try to expose Jesse to a lot of different stuff. I'm fortunate that I've always had a number of friends, including you, Carol, of color. So it's normal, right? And mm-hmm. you, knew my, you knew my parents. So you knew we grew up in a very integrated world. Mm-hmm. And, but it's been really important for us to give Jesse is integrated and broad a background, but he just, some of those issues, he just has to figure out for himself and he gets angry, angry at us over stuff. I get that. Mm-hmm. And he has all sorts of pressures. It's hard enough to be, have the last name Steyer in these days in some mm-hmm. ways, cause he's, I'm being serious. You know, he feels expectations of academic and other kinds of achievement. And he's a really strong young man, but he's six, he just turned 17. So he's learning. And these are really heavy issues in this country right now. You know, I'm very aware as a parent, how much racism and white supremacy there is on the internet, particularly on YouTube and Instagram. And I worry about that as a parent. I worry about what the stereotypes that affect my own child. So, so let me just ask you one final question on this. Sure. How different was this from your expectation of, I mean, you had to know sort of going into this that it would be um, you, anyone who has any, who adopts, period, yeah. because you're getting a child that has a different history, even if it's just for a few days, and having all of the world kind of wake up now. Do you think that's making it potentially I don't want to say easier, but more, um, I mean, if the parenting advice is talk, 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 now yeah. you at least are talking. <laughs> it well, sounds really, like you guys are having lots of conversations. It's really interesting. First of all, if you ask my wife, she would say adopting Jesse is probably the best decision we ever made. If you ask our three older children who are very, who love Jesse very much, um, but he's their fourth sibling, so he's a little pain in the neck some of the time too, you know, he's a <laughs> brat sometimes. And but they would say that Jess, that it was fabulous that we adopted Jesse, right? And most days, Jesse would say he's really glad to be part of the family. <laughs> but there are days when he's not, and you know, and where he's learning his own identity and coming into his own. And when you get to be 15, 16, or 17, Carol, you know this, kids start to grow up and they start to understand mm-hmm. issues. And But the open racism in America over the past few years, right, which obviously coincided with the legitimization of white supremacy coming from the White House. When we had major politicians in the United States legitimizing white supremacy and racism and Mm -hmm. and more than dog whistling to racist white viewpoints on stuff, I as a professor at Stanford cannot believe that this happened in our country at this stage. I thought we were better than this and beyond this. But that said, it's made it challenging for parents of kids of color, I think, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. racism is more overt. Um, and dis- and virulent, right? And hateful. It, they let the, those guys crawl out from under the rocks they were hiding under. And I find it a real challenge, but it's, you know, parenting's the most important job you ever have in life. It's way more important than whatever your career is. And we, I love 
um, being a parent to Jesse, just we treat it. He's just the same as our other three kids for the most part, but he has a different heritage and he has mm-hmm. different genes. He has different genetics too. Mm-hmm. I, as a white person, cannot understand what it's like to be in Jesse's shoes. I can love him the same as I love my other our other three children, but mm-hmm. he has a unique life experience, and I, and I have I worry about him in some ways that I never worried about the other three, and mm-hmm. it's an ongoing. But he's also the greatest gift we've ever had, and I'm very I will say again I'm very glad we did an open adoption and know his birth mom and that he's close mm-hmm. to his birth mom and mm-hmm. he talks mm-hmm. to her and he's met his siblings, and you know and that we can you just got to process the stuff. You just yeah. have to keep talking about it and it can be challenging, but it's worth at the end of the day, it's worth it. Absolutely. Jim, I'm going to wrap it up here. I okay. thank you so much for this great conversation. I need you to do one quick thing for me and I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you have to play the GCP bonus round, answer two quick questions. What is your favorite poem or saying? That's interesting. My favorite poem, I would say the road not taken by Robert Frost. Ah, Absolutely. And then quick, your favorite two children's books, and they could have been books you grew up with that your mom and your dad read to you or that you read to your kids. Okay. So one of them is definitely Where the Wild Things Are. I love (laughs) Where the Wild Things Are. I read a kid's book about Jackie Robinson to Jesse that I loved. Mm -hmm. I also love Oh, The Places You Will Go by Dr. Seuss. I used to read that to our kids all the time. So those would be my three favorite. Uh, children. Those are great, great answers. So you have been such, such a great guest. I thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure parents listening are thrilled as well because we've had such great conversation and really great advice. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I love it. It's such so fun to do this with a good friend like you. By the way, I would just say to parents, use common sense. Go to commonsense.org. It's there for you and every other parent in the world. And has hundred you'll join hundreds of millions of other people who do. But Um, You know, the other thing I would just say is support kids because we're at a critical moment in America right now where you could have the most far reaching legislation for children and for low income communities in the last 50 years. Really the most important social legislation since the New Deal. And so I would just say to parents in the audience that this is the moment to step up and make sure these things happen because we can cut child poverty in half. You can cut child poverty in African-American and Latino communities in more than half. And Mm -hmm. this is the moment politically. So support common sense and your favorite politicians in doing that because this we're at a critical, critical juncture in this country. So bless you and thank you for having me on, Carol. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation that you'll come back for more. If you liked what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcasts and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.